0: If you start seeing this as functionally reflexes that your body does, then you change the locus of the responsibility and you become basically on a journey to understand more about who you are, your body, more about what it is to be a human and less about feeling bad about what your body did.
1: Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. Oh, my gosh. This is a good one. Those of you who have heard the term polyvagal theory probably know this, but back in 1994, this is the neuroscientist himself who proposed the theory, now called polyvagal theory, PVT, that basically it looks at insights related to mechanisms in the brain that create symptoms that we see. So that one theory has stimulated research and treatment, emphasizing the importance of biology, the body, and behavioral regulation. So that's very cool. And we love that because what we're interested here in this community is how do we use science and and learn the relational sciences in order to get better and in order to heal. It's not just for our brains, it's for our hearts and it's for creating secure connections in the world. So a little more about Stephen Porges because this is very important. He is the distinguished university scientist at the Kinsey Institute, Indiana University, Bloomington. He is also professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He was the recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award, and he has chaired the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, Maternal and Child Health Research Committee, It's just amazing that he is able to produce like this, and you can understand him. He's relatable. You'll see he's just so kind through the interview, so it's just such a delight to be able to bring you him. Also, there's a video going around YouTube that is his son, Seth Porges. We will link it in the show notes, and it's also a really good sort of summary and application of polyvagal theory as well. Okay, we're going to be talking more about this, but this is going to be one of the foundational episodes, I believe, of our podcast Without further ado, Ann Kelly and I are very excited to bring you Dr. Stephen Porges. Welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you very much for inviting me.
1: So one of the things I have noticed is that there is a new celebrity on the block. My news feed is full of posts on the vagal nerve, even like cartoons and memes. And it's just the uh, it's the hot thing right now. Do you think that you're partly responsible for this?
0: Well, probably, but let's uh, say that I might not emphasize the vagal nerve as much as you think, because I think in emphasizing it, we miss the point.
1: Uh, okay.
0: The nerve is really just a conduit. It's a highway of bringing information from the body to the brain and from the brain to the body. When people get enamored with the vagus, they start thinking that the nerve has intelligence unto itself. And I find that a little bit disconcerting since I spent my life studying this. So, yes, I feel great that people are now aware that there is a vagus and it's related to a lot of other things. But I also get concerned that they think that the nerve itself is causal and can be fixed when it's really the highway. And you have to change the information coming down from the brain to the organs or the information from the organs to the brain.
1: Oh, that is so good. So it's basically your concern is kind of oversimplifying.
0: It's simplifying and making it in, it's concretizing it in a way that it was never meant to be. So it was supposed to be an understanding of how our body changes state and the connection of our brain to our body and our body to our brain it was really the foundation of a brain body science and medicine
1: this is so good to like you know hear what's true versus kind of again what becomes pop culture and uh, we so value that dr porges incredible work on polyvagal theory i think that this originally came out in 1994 is that correct
0: Right. I had to give a presidential address to the Society for Psychophysiological Research. And there was a tradition in that society that you would do something special. And that's what I did. And it was published in 1995. But in writing the paper and in creating the initial theory, it was like lifting the veil across something that we had noticed, we had observed, but we really hadn't articulated. So I see it as a rediscovery of what was what was there. We had never really thought about it in those terms.
1: And it has been quite profound and it's definitely being integrated now into lots of therapies and interventions. But again, I want, I want to get to what your suggestions are in that so that it encompasses.
0: I think if it goes back to really where the theory came from, there's an interesting story there. Oh, lovely. In the nineties, I was studying babies. I was studying fetuses. Actually, I was trying to develop a methodology that would be useful for uh, detecting uh, problems during the last trimester of gestation and during delivery. So I was trying to develop methodologies to measure the neural regulation of the heart in the fetus and in the human uh, newborn human because the clinical judgments were inferentially really weren't based upon a dynamic measure of how the nervous system was adjusting to that challenge. And I thought I had really the answer. I thought I had found something very profound and important. I thought I had found a way of measuring that vagal influence, which really is the brainstem control over the heart and basically saying that when the body is regulating in a good physiological state and it's resilient, can literally survive delivery, that vagal influence on the heart is strong. But when the baby suffers from hypoxia, they then become very vulnerable and they have clinical apnea as they stop breathing or clinical bradycardia, which means the heart rates drop. And so I was saying, well, I can get a measure that's protective of this. However, there was a real paradox here when I brought this into the medical community because neonatologists and pediatricians had been taught that the bradycardia, the potentially lethal heart rate responses, were vagal so i was now saying there's a response or a pattern that's protective and they're saying there's another pattern as lethal and they were right and i was right but the argument was or the question to me was how could a system meaning the vagus how could it be both protected and how could it create a lethal condition and the answer became quite simple that there really were two different branches and there was literally a rule built into our nervous system about how those branches would, in a sense, emerge and, and have their effects. And that during a severe stressors, we start using older, evolutionary older structures that regulate our autonomic nervous system. And in preterm babies, often they don't come into the world with a mammalian or a new type of vagal circuit. But the real issue is that when we're under stress, and now we start moving into the psychiatric and psychological world, is when we move into stressful situations, we remove that newer mammalian vagal protection from the heart, which is what I was studying in the first place. And I was very, in a sense, naive about these other circuits. I was basically almost had a knee-jerk response. Vegas is good. And in a way, that's what we were taught because we were taught that the vagus was part of the parasympathetic nervous system the major part and the parasympathetic nervous system was the part of the autonomic nervous system that support health growth and restoration that it was never described as a defensive system that had lethal consequences and what polyvagal theory uncovered was that there was a very ancient or older vagal pathway and that could be recruited in defense And that could functionally shut us down and create a lot of the symptoms that people have who have had severe trauma experiences. When it works, in a defense, we may dissociate, we may pass out, we may defecate. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes more chronic, you start getting manifestations of irritable bowel syndrome and other types of what they're now calling medically unexplained symptoms. Muse. And what they're really saying is they don't know what causes it. And there's a lot of these disorders, but they primarily are disorders of the subdiaphragmatic vagus, vagal pathways going below our diaphragm. So when you talk to clinicians and they talk to their clients, and many of them may be listening, a lot of the symptomatology is subdiaphragmatic. They may talk about genitalia pain, they may talk about irritable bowel syndrome, they may talk about diffuse pain fibromyalgia, or they may have terms that they were told that are also nonspecific, they may have dysautonomia. These are the terms that are used in the medical profession when they can't identify specific mechanisms. And what it starts to look like is that they are really a family of disorders that emerge in many cases, not in all cases, from this old vagal circuit that we inherited from more primitive vertebrates. And when that system is no longer supporting our homeostatic function, it has a defense mode, and that defense mode shuts us down. So that was the basic. The basic history was... We had a, a parasympathetic nervous system that we were taught was protective, but it really has a defense system. We were taught that the sympathetic nervous system was our fight flight system, and that's not totally correct either, but it can be recruited in fight flight, just as the vagus, this old vagal pathway can be recruited in shutting down. And the world we want to be in is actually an interesting world. We want to be in a world of relationship or relational safety. Because we as mammals need each other to regulate our co regulatory physiology. And that recruits not merely that newer vagal pathway, but in the brainstem, that vagal pathway is interrelated to the nerves that regulate the striated muscles of our face and head. So it controls our voice, it controls our face, but in a sense, we have always known this. We know who we like. Our body knows who we like.
1: We can feel it.
0: We feel it. And the issue is we do we feel it. And this is where polyvagal theory moved. It says, yes, we feel it. We're aware that we're feeling something. But you know what we're not aware of? We're not aware of the cues that put us into that state because our body reacts so it's such a fluid reaction, so seamless and so rapid that we are not conscious of it, but we're conscious and aware of our body's responses. So if we had to be aware of things to make all these decisions, we'd probably be run over by cars by now, everyone (laughs) in modern society.
1: Right, too much information coming in.
0: Our body reacts faster than we know why we reacted. And I coined a term that I called neuroception.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad you got to that, yes.
0: The word which says the body is detecting The nervous system is detecting uh, risk in the environment, evaluating it without conscious awareness. It's something quite obvious because when we walk into certain environments, we either feel good or we feel hypervigilant. We start, hey, something's going on here. And so our body has a degree of it's a type of intelligence that is not a cognitive intelligence.
1: And I have always you know, really loved that word. And also that what's important about it is that it's outside of our awareness. Would you call it unconscious or non-conscious? Or? I, I
0: am not sure what is the right word to use because depending upon the training and the vocabulary that people use, unconscious is a system too or subconscious is a system. All I'm really trying to say is that it doesn't require an awareness And the reason I wanted to make that statement, as strong a statement as I could, was that I couldn't use the word perception. And it kind of like feels we should perceive these things. But perception starts blurring into cognition where we become aware. And then we start getting in the world that many of the clinicians are in or the clients. Once you have an awareness... You move into blame and potentially shame reactions. Why didn't I detect that? Why didn't I know better? So you start changing the role that you had. If you start seeing this as functionally reflexes that your body does, then you change the locus of the responsibility and you become basically on a journey to understand more about who you are, your body, uh, more about what it is to be a human, Unless about feeling bad about what your body did,
1: yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this—that it's so non-shaming. One of our uh, Facebook pages it says, uh, "It's not me, it's my amygdala," and
0: <laughs> it's the part is that we are in a society that has—I call it cortical-centric or cognitive-centric, where everything is about. Thoughts. It puts a responsibility. I should have known better. It's a different type of knowing. We need to have a more greater respect for the body sense of knowing, which is not necessarily in our in our awareness.
1: I love it, especially in the West, that cognition and linear thinking and language is so valued, and this is not including any of those things.
0: Right, and you said a lot right there in the few sentences that you just made. The interesting part is the actual syntax that people use in their speech is probably far less important than the intonation of their voice because the intonation of voice happens to be regulated also by a vagal nerve and it reflects your physiological state. In if we take an evolutionary model and start looking at what happened in mammals, we're the only mammals that have speech. Yet all mammals, or virtually all that I know of, have vocalizations, and what they were using them in part was to convey to their conspecifics of their own species that they were safe to come close to. But don't humans do that also? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And if therapists can learn this and be able to mobilize it, then we're going to get really far because you're talking about sort of being able to establish an unconscious or an out-of-awareness safety to be able then to reflect and use our thinking
0: minds. Right. What you're doing is once you get the body in a state of trust and safety, then you can do lots of wonderful things. Also, if you're working on clinical issues, if the body feels safe with another, that means is that you can co-regulate each other. You have this interaction of maintaining presence. Then these events that occurred in the past, they're triggering by those events becomes much more tempered. So mm-hmm. what you're doing in the dyadic co-regulation is basically uh, exercising resilience.
1: That makes me think of a quick story. I was talking to the co-host, actually, of the show, and something had happened, and I was in a rush, and I had been kind of abrupt with her, and like, you know, here, let me just give it to you. So anyway, I had called, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I was a little quick- And then later we're talking on the phone and she's talking it through with me and I'm wanting to get to this audio book. And so all of a sudden I'm feeling myself do it again. Like, oh no, I can't be impatient again, you know? So I literally thought, social engagement systems are important and it really just helped me settle my body and just stay, and at the end, uh, we kind of joke, because she goes, you did so good. (laughs) And I'm like, social engagement.
0: (laughs) Well, it's quite wonderful. Social engagement system, it contains the cranial nerves that regulate the muscles of the face and head, including voice, our ability to extract human voice from background sound, and it also regulates our heart. So we have this interaction going through social engagement, that keeps us out of defense, and it's even when we talk about team sports, we see that people are mobilizing, but they don't hurt each other as long as they maintain a reasonable amount of face-to-face contact.
1: You see that in animals too, don't you? Where that it looks like fighting, yeah, but they have to look back at each other, you know, versus it turning into an actual fight.
0: Yep, dogs are wonderful to they chase each other. Yes. And then when they catch, they bite the rear leg, and the other dog turns and looks at the dog that did do the biting. They make face to face, and then a role reversal. And the face to face defines play.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, so play isn't playing on your computer, right?
0: Co <laughs> opted <Like> that, <laughs> that. the word play, when it really was being interactive. And I like to talk about play as a neural exercise.
1: And it involves spontaneity, I think, is something that you're spontaneity
0: about. Spontaneity and reciprocity. Okay. So when they deal with children who have atypical children in terms of their social behavior, so some that are on spectrum, and what you see on the playground is that other children don't want to play with them. Not because of what most people think, that they're weird, but because they're non-contingent in a playful environment. Mm -hmm. That means they get hurt. Other people get hurt. So when you see, especially like with autism or on spectrum, that when the child is becoming more socialized or sociable, they become more aware of the other and play becomes the natural product. And with autistic children, and I spent many years studying them, one of the first questions I would ask the family was, do you have a dog? Mm. And then I would ask, the next question was, how does your son or daughter deal with the dog? And if you got a statement like saying, totally ignores, it doesn't even know it's there. Then you ask the next question, what does the dog do to the child? Does it avoid or does it come to? And you start seeing whether the roots of a social interaction are there. And is the dog now therapy for that child in exercising these spontaneous reciprocal interactions without the pressure of being in a classroom or on a playing field? And sometimes it is.
1: Mm -hmm. That's lovely.
0: Word I use is that a play is a neural exercise. I elevate it. And we are in a culture that says play is a distractor. And even in the world of developing educational programs for autistic kids, it's all about how much time they have in terms of cognitive development, or not the only thing, but the primary bit. And likewise in our classrooms, our classrooms are becoming very difficult for children who vary at all in terms of their state regulation capacity because they don't have enough opportunities to play, which really means to co-regulate with another person.
1: Oh, that is really fascinating. So just a quick side question. So if the child was aversive of the dog, like didn't want the dog to touch them, is that related to this?
0: Well, first of all, what the child would be doing would be Reflecting, most likely, this hyper-vigilance and defensiveness. And when the child becomes welcoming, that's part of this interaction. But the other point is that autism of the features of autistic spectrum behaviors. It's not just the individual, it's the whole environment is kind of tailored. Autism is just a very broad category, and it's very hard. Even I shouldn't even brought it up because it should never be interpreted that if you are able to describe one autistic individual, you're describing all of them. In my world, I like to think of autistic individuals as having a dampened social engagement system. So I'm actually looking at just the system isn't working. A flat face, smiling in the lower part of the face, not the upper, voices that aren't melodic but are literally barking, hypersensitivity to sound, tactile, you know, all these defensive systems which tell you that the physiology, the autonomic state of the child, is defensive. So if it's in a state of defense, we don't know the potential of that child to be engaging, we have to get the state changed. And that's where I have always felt interventions should be directed.
1: For autism spectrum, and as sensory processing disorder, would you consider that on the spectrum?
0: Yes. But you see, if we think in terms of what I am trying to say, I'm trying to say that we've missed something extremely important in our conceptualization of atypical behavior. And what we've missed is the intervening variable and this is something for those of uh, you who have gone to graduate school in in psychology or related intervening variable just saying it's between two other variables in this case it's between the stimulus and the response. So we've forgotten that there's an organism that is an intervening variable, our physiology. What I've been really saying is a good marker for this is really the state of this newer mammalian vagal system, the state of the social engagement system. Mm. If that system is working, you have resilience, you have engagement, you have accessibility. But if that state is turned off or retracted, the body's prepared to defend. And that's what you're seeing in most individuals on spectrum. But you see this in, in people who are highly anxious. If we threw out the word anxiety and said, I'm prepared to fight, <laughs> my body's prepared to fight, Right, my muscles are ready like this, it might make more functional sense of understanding the physiology. And then we wouldn't say to people, don't be anxious. What do you have to be anxious about? <laughs> Your body's on a trajectory that doesn't fit the context. So let's, mm-hmm. how are we going to make this work? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with depression, where the body's shutting down. Our dissociation, we say to people, hey, you have everything to live for. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, if, if those words worked, many people wouldn't have a profession anymore. But what they do is they re-inflict, re-victimize a survivor. They re-victimize them as opposed to saying something that their body has done something to protect them from something in their lives. And the real issue is, are those features still in their world? So in a sense, the word I use, are they living a life that's filled with faulty neuroception that was just restructured or reset to protect them? So it's set at a conservative level. So saying, I trusted someone once, my body trusted, and I was injured. How can my body now feel safe enough to trust another person?
1: So for the folks out there listening that really want to be able to operationalize this, and somebody comes in and they're anxious or depressed or that their neuroception is off, and they would be nonverbal, they would be the neuroception, what are things to facilitate safety?
0: So I'm actually going to give you an example of what I've done in different workshops I just had people change the pattern that they're breathing and see how they perceived other people and other people perceived them. There was a reason for this, that when you exhale slowly, the vagus starts having more impact on your heart. It calms you down. And when you inhale slowly and exhale more rapidly, it does the reverse. Mm -hmm. It gets you mobilized and defensive because you've taken that inhibitory vagal break off your heart and your body now can mobilize. And I would do this in my workshops. and I would start off by saying we're going to do 10 breaths and we're going to inhale 60% of the time and exhale 40. And people go through this and then I would reverse it and say we're now going to inhale 40% of the time and exhale longer. So it would be a count to 10 and they would inhale for 4 and then from five to 10 day exhale. So this is what we started to see. When people were doing the longer inhalations, which take the vagus off, they would be saying, I would ask them, what did you experience? They said, I experienced that. I thought I was doing it wrong because when I looked at the other person's face, they were doing it across from each other. And one was an observer and one was breathing, then they role reversed. They would say, when I looked at the other person's face, I thought they were being very critical of me. Which is when you shift that physiological state, you have a bias towards negativity. So you see neutral faces as if they're angry. But when they shifted the breathing to slow exhalation, the words were really, and the tone of the voice would change. Oh, I thought that was just a very lovely person, a very interesting person, and I want to get to know that person better. And this was repeated in workshop after workshop, not everyone experienced it, but I would say 60 to 70%. And what that was being able to give the person was an example of something as simple as shifting their breathing pattern changed how they saw the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so powerful.
0: And once you experience it, you say, wait a moment. Let me think for a moment or let me take my body out. I'm overreacting two things and the other part which you were alluding to was if someone comes in and they're anxious and you don't want to give them the responsibility of breathing if you are engaged and you talk slowly with a very melodic voice it should start to help calm them Mm -hmm. but what normally happens when someone is anxious in your presence you become anxious with them
1: (laughs) neural wi-fi (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, but what they're doing is throwing cues at your neuroception that they're not safe. And we are such a connected species that if someone across from me isn't safe, hey, I'm not safe. They're my vigilance. They're my guard.
1: Wow. You know, I'm just so flooded with these different thoughts. One is I was thinking about lullabies. And when I had a little one, I'm now aware, I think what it was doing is it was forcing me to manage my breath, and tone, and not ramp up like a fussy child.
0: Right. So, he brought up something very important, and that is, we know intuitively how to calm a baby. Mm-hmm. We use the word lullabies, we say infant-directed speech, and if you have a dog, do you have a dog?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely.
0: How do you talk to your dog?
1: <laughs> totally. Well, besides a little bit of whistling, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, no, it's, it's mother ease, I'm for sure. <laughs>
0: And fathers are good with their dogs, not so good with their kids. <laughs> um, because fathers' voices tend to go into lower frequency bands and lose the prosody or the melodic aspects. And so I realized that. And I decided I would distill it. I would extract that from vocal music. And so I created some computer algorithms that basically work with this frequency band of, of mother ease, And I put it into a device and went into a program of five one-hour sessions which were functioning neural exercises using melodic voices and exercising the frequency bands and what that really meant was I was amplifying prosody. I was taking the vocalization and amplifying it by many factors and I start to use that with autistic kids Mm in the 90s and many of them spontaneously would engage and start talking
1: eye contact
0: it was shocking so i was did this for about almost 20 years in my laboratory working on this we did a few hundred kids and i didn't know how to bring it into a clinic or outside my own work and then i met people at this company called integrated listening systems and they took it from me and they are now distributing it and now there are 1400 therapists who have been trained to deliver this and what we're seeing this is to me what makes me smile
1: mm, good.
0: that they're duplicating what I saw in the laboratory and they're extending it to other populations that I hadn't worked on so I had worked on children and primarily on spectrum but they've worked on all different types of populations and now there are people using it in the trauma world But that is, from my perspective, not as simple as using it with young kids. When a young kid comes into the laboratory, the clinic, that child comes with an adult, is in an adult world, and can feel safe by the support of the therapist and the parent. And now the stimuli can start doing its work. But when an adult comes into that uh, same environment by themselves, they're by themselves. And now the sounds are cues of safety. And what happens to an adult who may have a trauma history once their body loses its defenses?
1: Well, they can get them right back, right? If they
0: React right back yes. with great anxiety and say, you know, fooled me once, don't fool me twice. But mm-hmm. they're not even on the conscious level. The body just pulls back and they want to, they get, want to get out of there. And I was so shocked to see this. I was doing a workshop in London, and I mean it was a big workshop. There were 300 people in the auditorium, and I would decide I'd play around six minutes of music that was computer altered. Because if I play three minutes, usually I get one or three responses. One, oh, this made me feel I was like going into a special space or I had an itching in my ear, and that I felt was good because you can feel the bones moving, which Mm. is what's supposed to happen, or they had no effect. So this time I played six minutes of the music. But I had forgotten one thing. I had forgotten that people in London are really, most people in London have either transgenerational trauma in their history Mm. or they've experienced trauma. I forgot that. Because they're either immigrants who've come there for a reason, or they have the aftermath of World War II. So I'm playing this music, and I'm this naive professor up front, and I'm waiting to hear the same responses. Uh, and I wanted people to say, oh, my ear is itching, and those are the bones moving when the nerves are regulating the middle ear muscles. But what happened was that a lot of people got very anxious, and their behavior was either going up and then crashing. And so there were a lot of volunteers at this meeting, and they then had to help support the people who were in the audience. And this went on the dialogue. So this triggered a tremendous amount of dialogue. And so after 45 minutes of back and forth, I had to basically terminate that part because I had to finish up with my workshop. But it really got me thinking because up until that point, I thought that whenever people would report some anxiety, that this was very unusual. I had not put it together. I had not, in a sense, decoded. And then I said, of course, of course, if your body now goes to a state of safety and your awareness is, I'm not going to be, you're going to trigger a neuroception. And I'm now watching many people in the uh, trauma world, especially those in somatic experiencing, are now using it, integrating this intervention, which is called safe and sound protocol, into their own treatment model. And what I was going to reason emphasize the name of it is I had forgotten that there were two components, even though we named it that, there were two components. One, you have to be safe before you process the sound. And so I had forgotten what I had really, in a sense, put together or developed that you need to respect the other person's physiological state before you can start doing these neural exercises.
1: And it speaks to how powerful that those exercises are. Would you say that that would be true too for like uh, mindfulness with someone with PTSD or that's...
0: Oh, mindfulness. So again, I, I think you're actually bringing up something that many clinicians are aware of, that if you have some individuals with PTSD, you put them in a mindfulness setting and now they're in open room and their back is now out there and they close their eyes, they're going to be reactive to get out of there. They're vulnerable. And so we have to understand about vulnerability and how our body reads it and be respectful of it.
1: Absolutely. And in a sense, kind of um, be guided by it, it sounds like. Now, I want to hear what your thoughts are about oxytocin that's also a big thing that I think is often misunderstood and you know people joke about wanting to put it in the water or something (laughs) and also related to dogs because you've also mentioned dogs and pets and so I'm kind of interested in this relationship about oxytocin.
0: well I'll talk about it but the right person the real person to talk to is my wife my wife is Sue Carter she's the one who discovered the relationship between oxytocin and social behavior So we have these various discussions, but I will give you my take.
1: Okay. And thank you, Sue Carter. That's wonderful.
0: (laughs) So in our world, we see oxytocin. And when I say our world, this is the family compromise. We see oxytocin as a moderator of autonomic state. Now, I want you to think about it from this is when you are giving birth, seldom do people go into a physiological shutdown the organs below the diaphragm are being used to for delivery. So it, my initial thought is that oxytocin enables the subdiaphragmatic vagus not to surge and shut us down. So what it does, if we want to talk about, it's a facilitator of immobilization without fear, which is what intimacy is. So it enables bodies to feel safe in the presence of others. That's the polyvagal interpretation. Uh,
1: Again, even just saying uh, immobilization without fear, you know, it's just such a lovely image.
0: And the other word is a moment of intimacy, right? (laughs) And think about that because when its body's conforming, it's. I was thinking,
1: or another word is cuddling,
0: (laughs) and as opposed to Mm squirming, so the body can now feel safe in the arms of another. And I often qualify this in the arms of another appropriate mammal. So some people feel very safe with their dogs, but not with people. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's why I wanted to come back to that, because oxytocin crosses species, safe species.
0: Yeah, oxytocin is, again, if you talk to me and talk to my wife, you'll get a different storyline on this. Oxytocin, from her perspective, is a very ancient peptide, neuropeptide, which comes in and out through the evolution of vertebrates. To me, the critical part is that oxytocin and its, its soulmate, vasopressin, become separated in the transition from reptiles to mammals. So in reptiles, there's something called vasotocin or mesotocin, which has features of both. And we probably still have receptors that are ancient receptors, and they may be uh, more sensitive to vasopressin, but they also have some sensitivity to oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So the point is that what were the functions of this separation? And I think they had to do with immobilizing without fear. Mm -hmm. And you think about three major. Think about nursing. You think about partuition. You can even think about reproduction. And, And when I started getting onto these theories of it, I would bounce them off my classes when I was teaching. And you have to be very, very mindful. I mean, use the magic word of the day. You have to be mindful of how people interpret things. So if we say that oxytocin enables one to immobilize during sexual acts, because in many mammalian species, there's something called lordosis, where they don't move. Now you're offending women who enjoy being physically active in sex so you have to (laughs) you know start talking about how we co-opt and how we modify how how we use these structures in different ways but the way I like to talk about it is oxytocin by creating those moments of intimacy oxytocin is critical in relationship building Mm -hmm. that's part of where Sue's work was and was very important because she was very interested in the lifelong bonds that the prairie vole made after they made it so Mm -hmm. it was like this relationship that this immobilization the shared moment and actually this is going to be a little bit on the humor side good some of the people may know uh, remember some of the seinfeld shows
1: i love seinfeld
0: okay one of the rules was no sleeping over (laughs)
1: Right. Right. For the bonding.
0: Right. Exactly. So that separate the sex as a sexual act from a relationship building. And it's important in our modern day society where people talk about Mm -hmm. hookup cultures and they don't talk about relationships. And I think sexuality is part of relationship building.
1: I'm not sure if it was you or someone else that said that if you don't want to fall in love or be open hearted, the moment of orgasm, look at the lamp. (laughs) That wasn't yours. (laughs) Like no eye contact.
0: (laughs) There's also stories about when are men the most vulnerable? You know, in a sense for people stealing their watches and their wallets. It's post orgasmic because the body is now going into mobilization without fear.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. And then going, just shifting a little bit clinically again in this sort of application, we're beginning to learn how to see when somebody's upregulated or downregulated. And then we're beginning to understand that even by prosody, tone of voice, pace. Also, I wanted to tie it into your thoughts in just a moment about attachment science.
0: One thing we didn't mention is the hierarchical nature of the autonomic nervous system. So if a person becomes more immobilized with this dorsal vagal, if you get the person moving, mobilized, it takes that dorsal vagal out of defense state. It tends to inhibit it, but it keeps it from happening, shutting down. But we can see this as a natural adaptive reaction that many people have, that they will do high risk behaviors, high activity levels. If they have had a history of shutting down or if they had, in a sense, a, let's say, a very bad abuse history, they'll keep mobilized. And that's very adaptive. And understanding that is very helpful because once you get, in a sense, an understanding of what your body is doing, you then aren't angry at it. You understand why it's doing that. And then you try to restructure the narrative to enable the body to be in a safer environment.
1: That's what I was wondering is like, there is actually a time when you would want to activate the sympathetic system and get more active.
0: Right. Now, the part, I I, I, when I start building and talking to clinicians about these models, there was kind of this inherent belief or quick belief, let's say, that dorsal vagal was bad, sympathetics was bad, social engagement was good, Mm -hmm. but everything's good. It just has to be used in the right way. And if we link social engagement with mobilization, it's play, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful, If we link social engagement with immobilization, it's intimacy. So everything becomes wonderful if it's in a safe world. Mm -hmm. But we are also prepared for worlds that are not safe so that we can be mobilized, we can fight, and at various unfortunate times, we can shut down and disappear. Mm -hmm. But we have to now restructure the narrative and see these adaptive reactions as life-saving or protecting us. And not be, not see it that we're, something's wrong with us. We can say that our bodies got into this state to save us, but it's not so easy for our bodies to get out of those states. Now, can we, in a way, convince our body that the world's safe enough? And mm-hmm. that's what therapy, that's what relationships are. That's what all the, the neural exercises that enable the body not to go into states of defense.
1: Yeah, Lou Cosolino talks about becoming an amygdala whisperer. <laughs> so I think that that's really tracking kind of what you're saying. Absolutely. And it's the amygdala firing, trying to keep us safe, that causes either this activation. or
0: The beauty of our nervous system is that if we have a social engagement system that functions, it choreographs the rest of our body. It mm. choreographs the sympathetics. And that older dorsal vagus to support homeostasis, it supports the sympathetic too, so we can feel highly aroused at good times, but not going ballistic, that we can calm down. It enables us to live a full life.
1: Well, and just as a concrete example of that, I think, is, you know, if somebody's waiting for an apology and the other person isn't ready to give the apology, and then when they finally get into a state with, you know, where their heart's open again, uh, the oxytocin, you know, I don't know if that's the right.
0: It's not a bad metaphor. Now, remember, much of science is a metaphor anyway. Right. So we have structures and we have neurochemistry, but we're dealing with a metaphor of the body being available, the heart being, what terms, those are our language. Yes. There's a physiology behind it.
1: Right. And that when we get into that open state that our words matter less. But we could apologize not in that state and then we it's not gonna have the effect. <laughs> is that
0: well, the other part is we need more neural exercises to have a greater understanding of ruptures and repairs. There's nothing wrong with having a rupture here and there. But there's a lot wrong with not being able to repair it. Do
1: a good repair. Not knowing
0: how to repair it. So what happens when there's a rupture, we want to be very careful not to make it a moral mandate, a moral decision. Someone was bad, they need to be punished. It's like a kid that has a tantrum. It's not pleasant to be around, but should you punish a kid for having a tantrum?
1: Mm, Or be offended or something like that.
0: The tantrum is the expression that the child can't regulate their physiological state. How do you think that that child can regulate if you threaten the child some more? (laughs) I mean, just think about what we do in our culture. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Our bodies didn't evolve to Mm -hmm. work
1: that way. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. And the intervention that you mentioned, safe and sound, is that right? Is there training? Is that available just for folks that might be interested? There is
0: an online training, but it's all through integrated listening systems, and people can find it on the internet and it's out of my hands (laughs) but they do the training and they distribute it and what i like to hear is the feedback so we're all in different parts of our life and so i like to smile so i would get when i hear these wonderful cases there's a forum on facebook that a parent started and there are 2400 plus families on this forum and they talk about their experiences and the woman who created it, her child was basically ready to be institutionalized, and now the child's mainstream. I mean, this it's not like this that's going to happen to everyone. I don't mean that. But what you have is a situation where behavioral state regulation was so disruptive that the child could not be controlled and was basically physically injuring his parents to a child that was talking about how much he loved his mother, and mm-hmm. all these kind of interactive bits, of
1: and that had to do with the safe and sound. It was
0: within five days, I was five oh, one hour session. so God. what it did was a physiological shift in state. Yes. just like we' mentioned about breathing. shift yes. the state, you'll get different emergent properties. Shift the state now that intervening variable processes or helps process inputs differently, you get different output behaviors. So, Mm -hmm. if you want to be loving and engaging, make sure, not saying, I don't want to cause responsibility here, but if that is your goal in life, it's helpful to have a physiology that is calm. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And not so easy, because once it fires, it takes a while to get back online.
0: Well, to kind of understand why it's doing that. So, what are the features? So, let's say... You're a porous person and a lot of people are porous. So if you work in a environment where there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear that, you know, budgets will be made or clinical hours will not be kept or certain jobs where there's this constant pressure, your body's going to respond to it. I mean, we use words like stress, which is not a very good, useful word, but what we're really saying is our social engagement system is really being uh, destroyed. Because we our body is reading the cues that we have to protect ourselves that there's no it's not a safe harbor mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. amygdala whisperer again, like it makes me think of that just kind of in a wrap up are there takeaways
0: there are takeaways that the takeaway would be on two different sides: one, your ability to read other people's physiological states and why that's important that your physiological state is not Independent of your emotional state. It's not independent of your accessibility, and it's not independent of what cues you're giving the other person. So, your physiological state is critical. It's being projected in your face and the facial muscles, but it's projected also in the intonation of voice. And intuitive clinicians have always understood this. They've understood in terms of the posture of the person, the gestures, and the intonation. So once you're able to read the person, you also have to understand what are the cues that that nervous system wants and craves. So our nervous system literally craves cues of safety in an environment that is safe. I have my own metaphor for this. I say that our nervous system is waiting for Johnny Mathis. And that (laughs) has to do with people who are of a certain age that they listen to. You're blushing already, I can tell. And so the issue is Johnny Mathis was powerful because he's using those frequencies and bodies could feel safe Mm -hmm. and intimate moments could occur. Mm -hmm. So our nervous system really is waiting for Johnny Mathis. And instead we hear all kinds of threats instead.
1: Well, that is incredible. And you have, would you like to mention a couple of your books or one that you would like to direct people to?
0: There's an edited book with Deb Dana, which is clinical applications of polyvagal theory. And that is the book that I really feel the greatest affinity to because it has so many chapters written by passionate clinicians and their responsibility in putting this book together was to convey how they embedded or used polyvagal theory so it's not in a sense saying polyvagal theory this polyvagal that it's how they could use it and i was very very touched by the chapters and it's a beautiful book i really enjoyed it and it has Introductory chapters by Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and Pat Ogden, who brought me into the world of trauma. And mm-hmm. I did initially start there and they were so welcoming. And so in a way, I want to honor them as well. And Deb was just fantastic. in as a co-editor, she basically had the word was she, she nursed the work like, with the authors. And when she gave up, she gave them to me. <laughs>
1: That's wonderful. So it sounds like such a packed resource.
0: It's really brought from clinical psychologists to personal experiences, to veterinary medicine, to neonatology, to psychiatry. People were writing, and they're writing from their heart, how it enabled them to be better clinicians or better practitioners. And it really, I really, it made me feel very good.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Well, our audience can catch that in the show notes. Just look below this podcast, and you will be able to see that link. And if they wanted to reach you, by the way, on his website, if you want to know more about this, it is packed, (laughs) packed full of articles and tons more, and and also other interviews and YouTube videos to learn more about this.
0: Talking about the webpage, I got a wonderful email. Someone says, and this was actually serendipitous because I had already reached out to my son to kind of help me on this. This person said, I'd like to give you a gift. I'd like to redo your (laughs) web.
1: You know, that's actually happened to us. We've had a couple of listeners just go over and above and really helping us on the back end. Like, come on, you know, keep going. So it's just so wonderful. Also, I want to mention your son's YouTube video. And it's a really wonderful, accessible, fast way to understand this theory. So we'll also link that.
0: Good. good. Um, he'd, he'd like that. He's good at those things.
1: <laughs> Apple tree. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay. And what about if somebody wanted to reach out to you? Is there a way to do that, or just you know, your website? Or?
0: People do send me emails, and I say, just don't be offended if I'm either very slow in answering or I don't answer. I try to, but it's very time consuming. Yeah, I do other things other than email, although. <laughs> it, but I, I try.
1: Mm hmm. Well, and again, if people are drawn to you and interested in you, there are so many resources on your site. And can you say the name of your website?
0: It's just Stephen Porges, one word, dot com. Stephen Porges dot com.
1: Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And I'm so excited to have you on because, again, we talk about it all the time. But to have the father of the theory on is wonderful.
0: <laughs> and pretty soon the grandfather. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, there you go. Okay, so we're ending, but you know what I forgot to ask you? I mentioned it when we didn't get back to it. Can we get your take on how polyvagal and basically how the biology interacts with the attachment sciences?
0: Well, several years ago, I wrote a chapter on this for a... A book, an edit book that my wife, Sue Carter, and I and several other people are co-editors on. It was all about attachment, a new synthesis. It was a conference that was held in Germany and it was with international speakers. My chapter really was talking about a preamble to attachment. And I view that as the physiology of being safe. So that that's available. Uh, it was republished by MIT Press. But I think that in the attachment world, we, again, get very much caught up with in terms of seeing the behavioral pattern and not seeing the underlying mechanisms that may enable attachment to occur. And this becomes really, I would say, even more interesting when you start moving into atypical populations like foster children. And we start watching what happens there where they don't have opportunities of safety and don't have a mental narrative to go back to of some safe moment of being held.
1: Kind of a body memory of that. Yeah. Right. And the neural network already formed. You know, I've seen also writing about blushing or flushing or whatever. I am so hot all of a sudden. So (laughs) that's some of what's happening on my end.
0: Oh, so... um You might not know, but first of all, are you hitting that age?
1: Yeah, I am actually, unfortunately.
0: Uh, Well, you know, I I just got through, I had prostate cancer and I had surgery in 2013, but I had recurrent this past year. Mm and I had radiation, but I had hormone treatment.
1: Mm. so some empathy development huh
0: oh it's horrible so the issue was I had hot sweats that were coming every 30 minutes around the clock and I could, I was actually timing it so I hadn't slept well for six months mm. or slept more than an hour at a stretch I'm getting back now I'm, I'm feeling much better but the issue is and when I was going through that, I said, "Well, people well, 'Well, they're just like women.'" I said, "No, no, women is least biological, than, <laughs> uh, you know. but for me, this was a major intrusion into my mm-hmm. system, my system was fighting back." Hmm.
1: Hmm. Well, I'm glad that you were fighting back, though. You're. Uh, I know that that's not exactly what you meant, but I'm so sorry to hear about the cancer. And I. It's a journey. It's that- yes. so the
0: the issue is it bothers other people more than it bothers me.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm right in the middle of it with very close people as a primary person.
0: It's an interesting experience. But again, you have to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, you know, again, if, if it hit me when I was 50 or 45, I think life would be, I don't know how I would handle it. Mm-hmm. But at this age, it's a, it's a different story.
1: You know, and it also just makes me think of, like, when you're able to let people take care of you. And not fight it because you feel safe with the, those people. I'm sure that that helps a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know you probably not, you haven't had uh, many interviews with professors or faculty. You have normally clinicians, but people in the academic world are extremely defensive about how they appear to others. Mm-hmm. So, so they want to all appear to be 32 years of age with the wisdom of a 70-year-old.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Oh, well, you know, that might explain why I haven't heard back from a couple of people. But <laughs> Alan Sroof came on. He was fantastic. I don't. You yeah, know, but,
0: but he that. must be retired now because he's even older than I. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You've been so generous with it.
0: Well, thank you very much. my name is lino i i'm happy to support therapist
1: uncensored podcast by joining up as a patreon subscriber i started listening just after they got started and i've learned so much about neuroscience and relationships and love listening to
0: all the guests my favorites are the attachment focused and anything about relationships i know if i can help keep it going by supporting financially i'm really happy
1: to so jump on patreon Thank you, Leno and Jamie, for letting us pull some quotes for you. And I really want to just, if I had an applause button, which we're not that fancy, I'd be hitting it right now because we have several new executive producers that have joined our show. And again, if you don't know what I mean, patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored is where you would go to join up. So we would like to thank Jacqueline Bricker, Tyra Butler, Kirill Araminko and Sally Monier. Our Gold Neuronerds that we want to thank is Tracy O'Dowd, Donna Woods, Carmen Carpenter, Claire Holberton, and Keith Ray. Thank you guys so much. And in addition, and so importantly, sort of the rest of the neuronerd community that we can get to today anyway, Shay Lee, Mike Romal, Amy Yance, and Anna Kondak. Thank you everyone. And if you would like to get more access, us and more content and just generally support the show please go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored all right we'll see you around the bend therapist uncensored is ann kelly and sue marriott this podcast is edited by jack anderson